Apple presents Meet the Author. Please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, journalist and critic Bill Adler, and tonight's guest, photographer, documentarian, and author of Henry Chalfont's big subway archive, Henry Chalfont. I'm going to uh, read from the book, which is actually possible. It's, it's, uh, it's an interactive book, which, you, which actually has some text. Thank you. And uh, I'll read it for a few minutes, and uh, then we'll just open this up here. Standing on an elevated platform for hours gives you a different perspective than that of the commuter whose presence on the platform is a fleeting, and sometimes not so fleeting, moment. Mine was an overview, a panorama. I became attuned to the urban pulse, peaceful and quiet between train arrivals, alternating with surging rush hour crowds on the arterial lifeline of the city. In the quiet, you hear seagulls and the murmur of people and traffic on the streets below. You smell the aroma of pizza and cuchifritos rising up from the storefront shops. It was a place to daydream, to observe the incredible variety of people and lives. Riding the L in search of pieces brought me to neighborhoods that I might never have otherwise visited and introduced me to the broadest spectrum of New Yorkers. I was able to see up close the effects of years of flawed government policies and catastrophic economic changes. At the same time, I was able to witness the grassroots response to this neglect, the cultural renaissance that was to become hip-hop. It was an accident of geography that I took so many photos on, on the IRTs. Those lines ran through my neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The best light was in the morning and the most trains running in the morning rush hour. I could be on the platform early, whether at 125th Street and Broadway or in the Bronx. 125th Street on the one line was the closest elevated to my home. I could make a quick run up there in a few minutes to catch a shot of a train as it emerged from the background, from the underground briefly before diving back into the tunnel. One problem was always to anticipate where a piece might be on the train. There was little time to run from one end of the station to the other to search for a piece in the few moments that the train paused to let the passengers on and off. There were two stations where you could see a piece coming with a view to the side of the train before it arrived in the station. One was Whitlock Avenue on the sixth line, which came across a long elevated stretch from east to west before turning south giving a full view of whatever pieces there were on the train. Same with East Tremont Avenue, where the southbound train makes a big S before arriving there. In 1979, I found my way to the 149th Street and Grand Concourse Station, the site of the writer's bench. On that day, I met Days, Kell, Crash, Mayor 139, Cause, and Shy. This was the core group of writers that at that time were most active on the lines on the lines I was taking pictures of. Through them, I got to know other writers from all over the city and began a very good working relationship that was to last for years. I would supply pictures and they would let me know what was going on. When they finished doing a new piece, writers would often <clears throat> leave a message on my voicemail telling me the details of the work done the night before what they painted, in what layup or yard, the line it would run on, 
and whether it was on the morning side or the afternoon side. This greatly facilitated my job, as armed with such information, I knew where to go to catch the piece. I always rode uptown on the train, keeping an eye on the downtown cars, afraid that I would see the piece I wanted. This would mean that I might not catch it at all, for it would have to travel all the way to Brooklyn and back uptown to the end of the line in the Bronx before returning back down to where I would be waiting, perhaps a three-hour turnaround. And often, since by that time rush hour would be over, the workers might take the train out of service for the off hours and I would lose it. I was always working against time, since I could never be sure that a piece would remain intact for long. Someone might cross it out or transit could buff it. I felt like I was stalking rare big game when I went out to take pictures of graffiti. The same disappointment when you lose a great burner and the same elation when you get it. So. Um, this is a great pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, I want to thank Apple for inviting us and, and uh, Henry for asking me to ask him a question or two. Um, I enjoyed what he read an awful lot and it gave you an idea of how he did what he did. Um, but I believe at this point that uh, lots of folks are really familiar with his work. Not to say that this isn't uh, a wonderful occasion. You know, this is, we're here today because there's a new book. Um, it's Henry Salfont's Big Subway Archives, Volume One. Uh, there's the promise of how many more <clears throat> volumes? Um, there could be eight or nine more. We're, we're working it out. Okay, so, you know, it's tremendously comprehensive, and, and we'll see more of Henry's work from that period than we ever saw before. But just, you know, as a way to help me kind of get an idea of the, uh, uh, the ground that needs to be covered, um, I, I want to I just ask a question, and you can signify by, by raising your hand. Um, how many people are familiar with this book right here? Most, right? Okay, this is, for the few of you who don't know, this is Subway Art by Henry and Martha Cooper. Um, it's a completely uh, remarkable book. It was uh, the seed of so much that, that uh, Henry's done. Um, and likewise, uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with a, a movie called Style Wars. Okay, good. You know what? Fuck that. Applaud right now. Henry Chalfant. All right, good. That's very good. Thank you. Let me just, you know, it, it, we all know, but just for the sake of, you know, extravagance, let me read you what, what folks have said about some of these uh, seminal works of art. Jeffrey Deitch, everybody know who, who that is? He's a very important um, gallery owner here in the city, super important, and he was onto so-called street art and graffiti very early on. And these days, at least uh, for the foreseeable future, he's uh, uh, the director of the Museum of uh, Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Yeah. He's running into trouble, I think, because he cares a little bit too much about hip-hop, but uh, he's got a gig for now. Here's what he said about subway art. He said, the wild style graffiti that was invented in New York City in the late 70s and early 80s is arguably the most influential art music since pop art. Much of its influence is due to the extraordinary documentation of the artists and their work in the book Subway Art by Martha Cooper and Henry Chalfant, now re-released in a beautifully reproduced 21st anniversary edition. Okay, so that's when there was, you know, uh, 
When did it come out? The 25th anniversary was? Uh, <clears throat> 2008. All right, so boom. Now, about Style Wars. Um, the chief movie critic for the New York Times is A.O. Scott, um, wonderful writer. And he wrote something about Style Wars in 2005, maybe. He said, you know, he takes a fresh look at it, you know, uh, 25 years after the movie came out. He says, you get a strong feeling of being there and being in this moment, in the subculture, in this city. It's interested in the people who make this art form and why they do it and how they do it and what it means to them. These kids are not motivated by a desire for money. Instead, they want to make their mark on the city they live in and transform it into their canvas into a work of art in its own right. Style Wars is a work of art in its own right, too, because it doesn't just record what these artists are doing. It somehow absorbs their spirit and manages to communicate it across the decades so that we can find ourselves, so many years later, back in that city, understanding what made it beautiful. And I think it's on the money. I think what he has to say there is on the money. But having said all of that, um, we're familiar with Style Wars. We're familiar with subway art. Uh, there are revelations in this new piece that Henry's done, the big subway archives. And I'll say, uh, in particular, in addition to the art, which is magnificent looking, there are wonderful new interviews with Baby 168 and Shock 123, lengthy interviews with each of them. Uh, each of them tells an ex extraordinary story all these years later about how it was back then. And so I, you know, maybe you call it an extra or something. But and Days, I, too. Days is interviewed in this piece. Too. And, okay, and Days as well. So, boom. I just wanted to take advantage of, of this event to talk to Henry about himself a little bit, because Henry is, uh, he's, he's a documentarian, and I think that, you know, he's constitutionally a documentarian. You know, typically he's somebody going to stand on the far side of the camera. He's going to be behind the camera, not in front of the camera. You know, for him to come out like this and meet his public is kind of rare. And me personally, I don't feel like I know enough about Henry. You know, the, the, the gentleman who, who's uh, so instrumental in the making of these seminal art pieces when it comes to, to um, hip hop culture. So he's agreed to answer a few questions. Um, I'm old. Henry's even older, and true. it's true, yeah. And he had a whole life, you had a whole life before you started documenting hip hop. Just tell us something about yourself, where you are, you know, where you grew up, that kind of stuff. Um, okay. Uh, well, I grew up in um, a place called Sewickley, Pennsylvania, which is um, <clears throat> a suburb of Pittsburgh and uh, I grew up actually on what is called Swickley Heights, which is the sort of posh suburb of Pittsburgh. Nice. Do you look down on the city? You look down. You know, you, you know, you could see the, because Pittsburgh, when I grew up, you could see the beautiful sunsets, smog sunsets, because there were, you know, there was lots of smoke from the factories that were, uh, you know, churning out steel. And, uh, but I lived on a farm, and that was incredible because I was free you know, it's a little bit like being raised by wolves. My, my parents were busy with other things. And I had the free run of this place until these very intense, dreadful moments when they would catch me and dress me up and take me to some, you know, sort of social event that I hated. 
So I grew up with this kind of dichotomy. Wait, were you an only child? No, I had, I had sisters. And uh, I was, you know, for a long time I was the youngest. And uh, before my little sister was born. But, you know, so the usual routine, dancing school, golf lessons, tennis lessons. I was being groomed for the country club life. And I found it stifling. Even when I was about six years old, I couldn't stand it. So I spent most of my time trying to escape. And um, I think that that experience, and also the people who were my role models at the time were, were like the people who worked on the farm, because I would work on the farm in the summers. And I became very good friends with the farmers and, and the people who were working there. And I learned to drive tractors when I was very young and dump trucks when I was about 12. You didn't know this about Henry Chalfant. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't this know. is all news. <laughs> but um, I knew because of that exposure that, that I wasn't going to be trapped forever in the, in the uh, country club world. So, um, and of course, it was borne out in my life that I was not to be condemned to that forever. So I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, you know one of the things that this path that I've taken has done for me is given me a kind of passport, a kind of an international passport into worlds that I never ever would have had access to otherwise. Well, you know, let, let's spend a little more time, you know, pre-hip-hop in your life. You know, you went, you went to uh, college at Stanford and you studied art, you became an artist. I mean, at what point did, did all of that happen? And, you know, you decide you're gonna work in a given medium and, and the rest of it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I went to college, as, and as a freshman I was, you know, I was much too immature to actually be in college, and I screwed up. I fucked up my first year, and by halfway through the second year they threw me out. Um, during the course of the next year, during that freedom, um, I worked for a while in California, then I, then I went to, um, you know, doing odd jobs, and then I went to Europe. And I lived in Italy for nine months. Which year? Uh, 1961. And uh, that opened up a new world for me. My father was working in Israel at the time, so I went to visit him there. And in between Israel and Italy is Greece, and I visited Greece, and I fell in love with, with Greek art and Greek culture during that period. So when they let me back into college a year and a half later, I had that under my belt as an influence, and I, I decided to take up Greek literature for the remaining three years of my college life. You mean classical Greek? Classical Greek language. You know, I'm not bad at language, and, and that was something that I could do. And I found out that I loved the literature. I had taken Latin in, in boarding school before that, which I found very boring. And Greek is so elemental and so sort of bloody and passionate. That, but are you talking that you about the language or the stories that are told? The stories that are told, but the language too. The language is very free. It's almost like the way people speak. So you could identify in a way that I couldn't identify with the dead language, Latin. You know, Greek was very alive to me. I mean, even ancient Greek is, is kind of similar to yeah. modern Greek, spoken Greek? Well, it, it's very similar to spoken Greek modern you know a lot of this, you, you could get you could get by in modern greece if you knew a smattering of ancient greek you'd call it yes i know archios logos and then people would start yakking to you in modern greek and of course i didn't get it 
very much. What did you just say, though? What? Oh, the old language. Archios Logos, the old language. Follow along, everybody. Um, yeah, so where are we? That's where I was. So it was during the course, you know, I, so I finished my, I actually finished, I got a degree at Stanford, and instead of going on to grad school, because I didn't want to teach at, in a prep school or anything like that, which was sort of what would be looming if you had a Greek literature degree, and I was interested in art, and I had taken some courses at Stanford. So when I got out, I, I, took, I went to San Francisco Art Institute and a, and a little school called Giacomo Patri School of Art in San Francisco, and I learned techniques. And then um, a few wait, wait, years later... Te te techniques for which medium? Well, painting. Painting techniques, mostly. Um, I was intrigued by making sculpture, and I was sort of chicken. I didn't know what to do or how to begin, and I ended up... Uh, apprenticing myself to a sculptor in Barcelona for uh, a couple of years, and I learned how to carve wood and to and to you know make make ceramics, and um, that's that was the basis of my arts education. So that's when when I came to New York a few years later, that's what I was doing. Oh, you were working as a sculptor then? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you come to New York in which year? Seventy-three. And when was your eye caught by? Well, actually, it was, my eye was caught two or three years before that when I would visit um, people in New York that I knew, friends, and come and stay with them. And I would see, that's, you know, I would see the early, early tags on the train. We're talking 70, 71, like that, 72. Um, and that Can I bust in just for one let me, let me bust in for one second here. This stuff is so amazing to understand how old hip-hop culture is, you know, the very beginnings of it. You know, those of you who were here for the presentation just before us, you know, saw a rock era guy and somebody was talking about the Rolling Stones and the Beatles during the, during the 60s, and then into David Bowie and Led Zeppelin in the 70s. And Henry's talking about uh, the start of hip-hop culture being kind of contemporaneous with the rock stuff. People don't even understand how far back the roots go. Anyway, go ahead, please. Yeah. So um, while I, you know, while I had seen them and I was intrigued by them, these tags and, and things running on the trains, and by the time I moved here, it was pretty well along. Uh, the, the evolution that was taking place, the the old school writers um, who were were up, you know, like you know, Phase Two people like that, Blade, you know, you'd see. Um, you were you were starting to identify individual artists by that time. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, what do you mean, uh, you sure, Henry? This is very avant-garde. Well, what I'm saying is this. Also, also, there was, you know, there was a book. There was the Faith of Graffiti. That went, well, Mailer's which, book was it? Well, John Nars' book that Mailer wrote the introduction to was out, and of course, I went to get that, and I saw that, and I thought, well, somebody at least is taking pictures. And then there was the show at the Razor Gallery that took place the same year, and Wait, I went what to is that, that show. Is that like '73? 73, there was a show in, in one of these Soho galleries, and, and um, I went to that. Um, but I didn't meet any writers, you know. I, I didn't, you know, I saw them, didn't, didn't introduce myself. I had nothing to introduce myself with. I was just like, wow, you know. And I didn't really know who was who and that kind of thing. Well, wait a minute. Just, you know, so, so this stuff speaks to you directly. You know, you're living in the city. Uh, before you get to the city, you see what you 
take to be a kind of a new art form or at least you know a, a new kind of creative expression it's visual expression you're an artist you're living with artists uh, in an artist community I guess and who of your colleagues who of your friends were you even able to talk to about this oh you know actually I would write letters to people friends who were not in New York because I, w I would write to them and say you wouldn't believe what's going on here and how many of them wrote back and said you're out of your mind <laughs> yeah, well, they already knew that. So, um, you know, <laughs> I really couldn't resist taking pictures after a while. And when I, when I learned the city well enough to, to see the trains running outside, I thought, wow, now this is my opportunity. I can take pictures. Because before that, I, I was just running underground. And I didn't, you know, I tried to take pictures a couple of times and with a flash and and then an angle and that kind of thing, and it was very unsatisfying. So I I'm thought. just saying, you know, New York is an art world capital. There's always stuff going on. Uh, you know, th th there are territories within the art world. People are doing different things in different media, and you find yourself, out of all of that, particularly attracted to this emerging form called writing. Right? Yep. Why? <clears throat> well, compared to, you know, I was making art, Right, and I was I was influenced by the modernists. So the things that I well here I should probably, da da, there it is. There's me in in 1967, carving wood, carving a couple of uh, of figures out of wood. So um, <laughs> by way of saying I was doing stuff like that, and then I I was doing modernist sculpture, which is abstract and which is very clean-lined, but also, you know, expressive. You can see, like, Henry Moore sculptures up by Lincoln Center. There's a nice big one there. Things like that I was doing. Um, in Soho at the time, it was very popular. The, the big trend was minimal, minimal art and conceptual art, which is interesting, but it's also very cold and very intellectual and uh, kind of platonic. And so I wasn't getting fed by the, the art that I was seeing around me nearly as much as I was being fed by what was evolving on the trains. So that's, that's what was pushing me. Um, you start to, you figure out a way, as you described, you go onto the platforms, you take your pictures. Oh, one of the things I want to say, by the way, and it's just so heartbreaking, is that um, you know, we're able to see these images nice and big here on a screen. Uh, this new book is made for an iPad. Um, this Subway art book came out in a deluxe edition uh, that's double the size of this book uh, physically, and there are foldouts in it. So, you know, all of that's kind of thrilling. But one of the things that you, you wrote in here that stuck in my mind that I loved an awful lot was you described the Subway train as a 60-foot canvas. And the, you tell me, but I think the ideal way to, to uh, get the impact of the work would be not a screen like this, but just to roll a train back here that size and let people see it. To, um, to see that, you know, to see, you know, one of the things, is, as, as most of you folks are going to know, I mean, it's, it's just so uh, uh, heartbreaking again that um, the work that Henry captured was effaced quickly it didn't last and um yeah it was it was <clears throat> every everything worked against it right but in a way that gave it its vitality 
you know, we can, I, I, we're all sad to see something destroyed that's beautiful, but it just spurred people on to more. Well, one of the things also, in, in, this, um, in this new book and also in Style Wars, I took, uh, I took another look at it, and one of the things that struck me is how dangerous it was. You know, I, at one and the same time, you had to worry about the cops and rival crews, and it got violent. Uh, let me ask you this. Did you ever feel yourself that you were in danger, Henry, you know, while you were doing your part of the work? Um, <clears throat> well, actually, there's a, there is a story in that. I, um, um, I ended up taking karate starting at age 45, which is a, very late to do it. You're not in shape, that kind of shape. But I did it because I was, I was getting threats here and there from different people who were much better at this than I was, and I've better I had what, never... Better at what, karate? Well, that, anything, you know, violence. Better at violence. Violence, you know? I didn't, I grew up in a, in a very protected sort of way, and I wasn't a, I didn't have to defend myself a lot when I was little. And so here I got all the way to age 45 without having to defend myself. So this is what I'm talking about, you know? This has given me a ticket into other worlds. I never, other, never otherwise would have ended up taking karate if I hadn't felt this well, did you, you, I'm not asking it to name names, but I mean, was it, was it some of the other artists? Everybody, you know? everybody knows. It was Wasp. He's apologized since then. I saw him 25 oh. years later. All right. Wasp um, really threatened me after Style Wars came out because he was in it. And he um, uh, objected to the way he was portrayed. And so he, he told me he was going to fuck me up if he saw me alone. And uh, that, I said, well, I can't be afraid to go out. I've got to do something about that. So I actually got a black belt. I, I took karate for 12 years. Did you have a chance and to I didn't employ like it? it? I didn't like it much because it was a rough, it was a rough uh, traditional Japanese dojo. And, uh, you know, I went, through, I went through some scary times from my point of view. Other people love it. I don't love it. So you're not built but for I, violence. I'm not built for violence. Okay. And did I ever have to use it? Only in the sense that I amazed myself by tripping while carrying something and found that I rolled and stood up. <laughs> and that That's was, cool. That was something. <laughs> All right, That's so I've right. Got, I've got, That's right. Tuck and roll. <laughs> I really have got, I've got maybe one more question, and then you know Henry Henry's got um, some stuff he wants to talk about, and namely the making of this book. You know, one of the things that that you know when I met Henry, it was uh, sometime in 1981, and I guess you were not living as as best as I recall. You're not living on the Upper West Side, then you're downtown. We live downtown, yeah. And you know, it's not just that Henry had. Uh, the confidence and affection of all of the, the, the guys who were writing at that time, and so they'd tell them when there's a new piece up and come take a picture of it. But it struck me that your apartment was a kind of a salon for the writers as well. Well, I had a, you know, I had a studio. a studio downtown in Soho, which was, you know, for making sculpture, it was a huge ground floor studio, like a big cave and with, with girders and, and pulleys to lift the... Because by then I was working in stone, and stone is very heavy. Um, and in this cave, I had my albums of photographs, and all y'all who are here, you know, were there. You know, you know. So I, I was... Um, I had what turns out to be more than 800 
photographs of trains that I painstakingly, you know, stitched together um, by with cut and paste techniques, and um, uh, you know. Well, Henry, talk for a minute. Talk about your studio as a salon for the writers. Okay. Well, you know, it it became that because. Um, when I, when I finally met writers, I'd taken pictures for several years before meeting any. Um, I wanted to show them what I had, you know, the albums that I had made, and, and they were eager to see them. And so people started coming, and it became kind of a center, you know, because it was like a, a museum or an art gallery for, for graffiti artists. And they could come, you know, people who were trying to study could come and look at the pictures. People who were, you know, wanting to show off their work to others would come, and it was it was a fascinating time, and it lasted for about you know f five years maybe max, and That's then a good um, it was a good period. All right, yeah. well, one last thing, you know, um, people um, might wonder: you're an older guy, you're not of color. Uh, the artists that you're working with are mostly teenaged, many of whom are color of color. Um, it, it seems so obvious to me to ask this, but how do you how do you bridge that gap? Was it hard to bridge a gap, or was it just, you know, everybody is into the art together, and we're going to talk about the art that we all love? That's basically what it was. I mean, we we had a, a very good arrangement between ourselves that they wanted me to take pictures and I wanted to get pictures. And so, you know, they called me up in the morning and said, we did this on the two line, you know, try to catch it. And that was fine with me. And, you know, there really wasn't a, a divide. I think maybe, you know, I've heard that people thought I was a cop at first, you know, I, I fit That's the right. demographic. That's all right, you thought they the were thugs at first. I fit the demographic, right? right? right. So, you know. Um, yeah, all in all, it was good. All right, so you wanted to talk, talk to people well, about, I particularly do, about do, the making of this we, book. I started um, probably around 2000 or 1999. I wanted to organize my collection, and, and Sasha Jenkins, my friend, who I believe is here tonight. Um, Sasha Jenkins, you know what? Are you in the house? There he is. Yeah. You, know, you know what, Henry, shout out everybody who's here who, you know, oh, we need God. to know. I see, I see, well, Sasha's in the house. Um, Nick One is in the house. So is in the house. All right. Min One is in the house. Lee is in the house. Beautiful. Cat is in the house. You know, just call, shout out yourselves. Who are we missing? If Anybody? I, if I'm missing. Wayne COD. Wayne COD is in the house, right in front of my nose. So, Hiding behind and, the camera. And, and Max Hergenrother, who is my uh, the. Who was his name is on the book as the designer, and who has helped me for several years now to put all this together to stitch what used to be with cut and paste he's done with the computer, beautifully uh, putting these pieces together and organizing it in a way that baffles me to this day. How you could get all these. Um, Things. Well, we started out making a DVD set. We were going to divide it up with uh, with different crews and affiliations. And is Carl Weston in the house? Perhaps, maybe not. But Carl was um, going to do the the video interviews, and he did do the video interviews of about 50 artists from back in those days, which um, 
kind of focus on the crew, the life of the different crews and the relationship of the crews to each other and how they begin, how people get into them, and sort of the, the culture of crews, which I, I had really, while knowing they all existed, didn't really know much about it sociologically. So that was, that's kind of the focus of our interviews. And, um, you know, between, between Sasha and Max was another, another friend who came from the School of Visual Arts, uh, Nathan Fox. And he started to do the stitching, which Max completed. It's been a 10-year project. And um, it's just, at a certain point, Max discovered that he had a brainstorm, that all this work we were doing on DVD would fit on the iPad, on the, in iBooks. And it did, and it worked even better. It works much better on iBooks than it ever would have on a DVD. But that revelation occurred, what, two years ago, a year no, ago? No, not even. When? Max? Yes, five or six months ago, this, this brainstorm happened. So and Apple has I produced this thing in a matter huh? of months? So, yeah, we just, you know, it was ready. It was ready because we had the, and let me explain, it was ready in a sense. We haven't completed this. We've got eight chapters to go. Um, so that was another advantage to bringing it out as an iBook, as you can do it one at a time. And so we're just going to, you know, tantalize you and bring it out little by little. And, uh, you know, tonight one of the things I wanted to do is, is when we get the q and I want to get Max up here because he's got, you know, I'm sure you'll have technical questions which I'm not ready to answer. And if, if, uh, if Carl turns out to have arrived, um, you know, he can talk about the video and all. So, uh, well, as far as I'm we? concerned, it can be Q&A right now. We can start yeah. now. Yeah, that's good. So just raise your hand, and I'll bring the microphone right on over to you. So it's a little bit like Cole, Cole's to Newcastle, because um, everybody here perhaps knows more than I do. I, I will say this. I mm -hmm. want to say, Cindy, hang on one second. Um, Give you a, a, a measure of, of Henry's stature. I got a phone call earlier today from Glenn Friedman. Everybody know Glenn? He's a younger documentarian. You can describe him uh, that way. Wonderful photographer, and he's got a series of books called Fuck You Heroes. And I recommend them to all of you who don't know his work. But um, Glenn called today and he said uh, he couldn't make it tonight. He was very distressed, and he wanted to know if it was going to be recorded. And I said, yes, it's going to be recorded. And he said, good, you got to tell me when it's up, he says, because what he wants to know from Henry is, how did you get this new version of Subway Art done? Because, of course, he's thinking down the line he wants to do the same thing with his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, so go ahead. It, so it'll come out yeah. as we go along. Cindy. Questions? Um, I was wondering, when you first began photographing the artwork, who were you, who were you doing it for? Was it for yourself, or were you... Did you have a sense that you needed to document it for a bigger audience? Well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a documentarian, it was, so it was for myself. It was something that I liked, and um, it was something that, as a newcomer to New York, I was thrilled with, and I wanted to show people. So, like I said, my first, my first audience were, you know, I'd put photos and letters to friends of mine who had never been here, you know, because I'd, I'd lived in, in Europe for 
three years before coming here. I had lots of friends there who had never seen anything like this. And I take it they were more open to it. Oh, you know what, Henry, along these lines, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, as of uh, 2005, I think, I think there were 21 uh, reprints of subway art. Now it's it's whatever seven eight years later. How many how many reprints? How many editions have there been of it? Of of this of this book, um, this is still in print, right? Yeah. Well, I think so. I'm not. I think it's still in print. All right, but yeah. probably at this point, you know, it, 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 30, 30, 30 editions of it. The other thing is this: into how many languages has it been translated? Um, German and. Uh, as far as I know. That's all German and English? The, 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 the new one has been translated into Italian. You know, the big one, 25 years. Oh, cool. All right, that's good. But I, I should say that, that something which has, has given me a lot of pride is that in 1987, there was an article in the London Times which said that spray can art was the second most stolen book in England. That's after big. They said Subway Art, which was the first. Wow. So <laughs> that, That's that incredible. Was, that made it a little hard. You know, I must say at the beginning when it first came out, because in New York, after the first weeks it was on sale, they took it, they took it out of the display cases and they put it behind lock and key behind the counter, which probably slowed down the sales a little bit. <laughs> wow. Okay, who else? Questions? Anybody? I'll come now. I see yes. one in the middle of the third row. Or comments. Uh, hey, Henry. Um, Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, do you still do uh, work as a sculptor, or is your art totally in the photographic video uh, uh, medium and uh, if so when did you make that transfer and when did you stop? Um, <clears throat> yeah I stopped probably in 1982 making sculpture at that point I was I was working with Martha Cooper on the book and I was working with Tony Silver on the film and I didn't have any time to do sculpture and I was also you know I think I implied that while I loved I loved what I was making I did not love the scene that I was in, and, and <clears throat> the art that I was making was not having a particularly great success uh, compared to, you know, the minimalists and, and conceptual artists that I was surrounded by. Um, I was having a good time. I was in a co cooperative gallery with, with other sculptors, but um, it ended up being, I was making something that was considered decorative and you know as people were buying them for their house to be in the you know to get to get along with the furniture or to be in the garden which is fine that's also what it's for but I felt kind of isolated from the world doing that and so it lost the flavor for me so I, I went into this documentarian thing with a lot more enthusiasm from that point and uh, that lasted for a long time. And I find that now, since I'm, you know, now that I'm, you know, old, right, I've, I have a yearning for getting back to some of my own work. And I don't know what it'll be. I had, I had some fun about a year ago with some building things out of rocks, you know, piling things up and building shapes out of rocks. 
Um, and I'd like to get to do more of that. Uh, so, yes. We have another question to your yes. left in the back row. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. I was just wondering, uh, why is it that you never documented at length any of the other elements of hip-hop? Well, I did some documentation of breakdancing and b-boying, which, which is in wars. Style Wars. So it's not that I never did uh, anymore. I just didn't... At the time, we, we focused on graffiti and b-boying, and we just didn't get involved with the music. And since then, you know, um, the thing burgeoned so fast and so large, and I was so involved with the aspects that I was involved with that I just didn't expand to the music aspect. You know, also, I think that, uh, you know, hip-hop culture was the brainchild, basically, of Africa Bambata. You know, that he was the guy who saw that these disparate art forms might be uh, usefully collected under the, the rubric of hip-hop. You know, you had the graph guys over here and the MCs over here and the breakdancers over there and guys writing rhymes over here. And they didn't always necessarily have anything to do with each other. Everybody had his own particular art form and he was into it. But, you know, if you talk to Lady Pink today, you know, and ask her what kind of music she listened to when she was, you know, young like that, it's not like she cared anything about rap music. If you, if you say the word rap music to her today, she might slap you in the face. So in any case, I think that, you know, Bambata was right and that you could uh, usefully say that these previously kind of disparate art forms were all expressions of mostly youth of color right here in, in this city and that collectively they should be known as hip hop. But at ground level in the 70s and the 80s, it's not like those groups always had a ton to do with each other. Yeah, I mean, you consider there's, there's a time difference between writers who were very active around 1970. There wasn't hip hop. At the time, and they were they were into R and B and you know W A B C and right. Beatles even and things like that. You know, they were, this predated hip hop. And then you you have people who culturally were in a very different milieu, like people like Scene. You know, when we asked Scene what his favorite song was, so we could have a kind of signature song for him, he he named the Wanderer and Dion. You know, as his favorite. All right, that, and that's, that's in the whole, movie. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, then again, I, I, real quick, um, I interviewed Curtis Blow for the Daily News in 1980, and he had a, a hit then with a song called The Breaks. And uh, the story he told me is that he kind of slipped into rapping when he got too old to break dance. You know, he'd got been it. a teenage break dancer, and now that he was, yeah. you know, 20 or 21 at that point, he was too, early, uh, too old to do yeah. that stuff anymore. We have another question right here in the second row. Yes. With the release of this uh, iPad edition book, how did you use the iPad to, to present it? Is it interactive? Can you talk a little bit more about... Now's the chance to, for Max to come up and, and speak, if he would. Max Hergenrother, the designer. Hi. So the reason that we chose this platform to do for the book was because in the DVD... Can we, we were put up the, the... I'm sorry, put up the iPad while this is going on behind... Sure. 
Well, the reason that we chose it was because of the ability to do interactive content. We had been trying to do that with the DVD and trying to make it work on the DVD uh, by using your remote control. We were splicing together pieces of these trains which we were using to the top and the bottom of the screen and being able to pan across so you could actually see them in a large format on your television. And when we saw the iBooks content that was going out, um, and we moved past the images in here and the interviews. Here we are. So, you know, you can scroll across and see them all at the bottom here and then start flipping through them piece by piece, one at a time here. And just like you're seeing it on this screen here, if you have the Wi-Fi connectivity to your television set, you can actually do it at home, too. And so the first time, like you had mentioned earlier, you wish that you could see them really large, 60 feet, large, wide. Yeah, 60 yeah, feet yeah. wide. Well. I was thinking the exact same thing, and this was the tool to make it happen. And so, with all of the work that we had done in the assets on the, for the DVD project, we had this massive collection of things ready to go into the book. And when I saw what the iPad could do, I thought it was a no-brainer. I asked Henry, and he agreed, and here we are. Yeah, there is interviews, video content. If we can uh, scroll forward here, pinch. Through. I recommend the hell out of it. Two really great interviews. And hold on. We have interview content here. This is some ga gangster shit. So we have, uh, we have 50, 50 interviews with writers from back in those days. Um, and I think uh, in this particular uh, volume, there are three interviews, uh, Baby 168, Shock, and, uh, and Days are in it. We shot shock at the Hall of Fame, and so there were trucks and trains and, you know, noise. What else? Any other questions? questions? So another question right in the front row. What's up, Henry? Um, do you remember what uh, the last day you were on a train station platform taking photos or, or even the last subway car? that you took a photo of? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really remember the last day. It might have been, one of the last ones was, was Blade's last car, because he wanted me to get that very badly. Um, and it was quite, I think it was 83 or 84 that, that he did that. I don't think I was up there very much after that. You know, one or two times I went up, but it was it was pretty hard. There was a period after after the early '80s where there was not very much running, but the stuff that was running, like your generation, was really good. Um, but I was I was pretty much finished by the time you were really active. Well, along those lines, here's a question. This is very nerdy, but as I said, I just watched Star Wars again, and and what happens during the course of the film is that you know there's this tremendous flowering 
of writing and art on the trains and whatnot, and it, it occurs at a moment when the city is trying basically to shut it down, and they finally figure out a way to completely erase the stuff from the cars. And towards the end of the movie, you get a shot of uh, these all-white trains with no art on them at all, no markings at all, in a train yard, and then one of the trains pulls out of the yard. And something about it is so affecting. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful shot, but also it's scored to a piece of music I, I can't recognize, something out of the classical repertoire, but it's, it's magnificent. What is it? It's a Wagner piece. Um, and it's the Flight of the Valkyries. And, uh, you know, it was Tony Silver's Brainstorm, the, the beginning, beginning opening sequence of Style Wars with that piece. And then towards the end, the tragic end of it. It was tragic. It fits, it fits beautifully. And it was, it was a brainstorm. I think at that time it was so way out on the edge that nobody ever would have, you know, other people making a documentary about hip-hop just would have had some hip-hop period. I would have. Tony said, no, this is a drama. This is a citywide drama, and, and we're going to do something different. And, you know, he did. I got to uh, hand it to him. Still communicates to this day. Yeah, it's great. Sasha Jenkins, you're so modest. You have nothing to say, no questions. Say something, please, Sasha. Well, first of all, uh, once again, congratulations. Um, from my perspective, it's really interesting because when I first uh, started helping Henry with this, all of his negatives, and those of us who know Henry know that he kept all of his negatives in a very homely brown suitcase. <laughs> um, it's the kind of suitcase that you wouldn't want to be seen in public with. Um, the street term is you would get herbed for carrying a very unassuming, unsexy uh, suitcase. So I want to know now, where is that unassuming herb-like suitcase? The Smithsonian. You know, only, only in the last, in the last year did I uh, actually take the negatives out from that suitcase, and it's gone. You got rid of the suitcase. I got rid of it. And I put the negatives in, you know, those, those similarly sized boxes with labels on them, but they're hard, and, you, and they're protective, and you put them there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know that, that suitcase? You know, the original negatives, after we had the Thames and Hudson deal, that they said that they were going to make a book. <clears throat> I lost all the negatives for a one week. Can you imagine how bad I felt? Here I had reaching, reaching for the stars, and we had success within our grasp, and I lost all the negatives. And what had happened, I thought I left them on the train, you know, going between my studio and home. I went to the lost and found a transit. I, I you know, couldn't figure it out. I was going, I almost had a nervous breakdown. There's a drawer, a filing cabinet in my office that after about a week, I put something in it and I went back to get it and I opened the drawer and it wasn't there. I thought, what? And that was the clue. They had fallen behind the drawer of the filing cabinet and uh, my life was returned to me. You know, I actually have one more, I have one more question. So, a lot, of, a lot of people know the more iconic photographs from, from the books, you know. Um, 
you selected some really magnificent works early on because you were sort of educating the world on the power of this art form and how beautiful it was. But as we know, the culture is a little bit more well-rounded. Not everything is beautiful. Not everything is pristine. And so going back and looking at this stuff magnified the way it is with this modern technology. Talk about some of the, 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 the other nuances of the culture that you rediscovered by looking at these images in a new way. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of experimentation which goes on, went on in the creative process. All this magnificent work that's been done went through, you know, and artists themselves go through trial and error. I think one of the things that has always appealed to me so much about graffiti as an art form is that it's also a performance art. You know, because it's the kind of thing that you can't hide from people while you're making your mistakes. You know, you throw it up there for the world to see in whatever state of mind you are and, and you know, if you, if you don't like it or you screw up, too bad. Everybody gets it and everybody's going to be watching it. You know, the whole culture of benching. You know, everybody's going to sit there and, and laugh at you when you screw up. So it's, there's that intensity, which, um, which I love the experimentation which went on through that period. And a lot of the things that I have are like that. They're, they're um, you know, imperfect but they're exciting still. And they're getting from, you know, making art is never finished. When you are making it, the very act of making it makes you think of what you want to do more and what you want to perfect and go somewhere else with it. And if you're sitting and not doing art, I mean, I know this from not doing art for a long time, you stop thinking that way. Which is one reason why I want to get back to it, because I, I, I miss that thinking that comes when you're doing. We have time for one more question. Are you sure? Can I just, you know, I'd like, I want to say a word about Sasha Jenkins, who we just brought into this unexpectedly. Uh, I've known Sasha for a long time uh, as a member of the Ego Trip posse of, of writers and, and troublemakers, but also Sasha. Tell people, you know, give people an idea of some of the things you've been doing graph-wise in the last few years, just so they know. Well, I've been doing no actual graffiti, so I don't know. Your books, though. Yeah, I've done, I've done some books, but most importantly, I'm actually, Henry and I are working on a book uh, now that um, goes into the question I just asked him. Um, we're actually, with Subway Art, there were no interviews. It was very visual, and you got to experience, you know, what the artist did now. We're going back and looking at some of the photos that were never seen and getting interviews and having people comment on what they remember from back then. And then my wife got a look at this, what we're looking at now, and sent it to me before I did, and I swore. I said the F word, and I said, why am I even doing this book, like this printed book? When now this guy has this amazing living, you know, it's cyber benching, you know, for people who didn't experience the culture and they never will because it's come and gone. You know, it's such an amazing um, sort of chapter in educating people on what existed and the importance of it. And he's got actual interviews where you see people talking. So I'm kind of like, you know, it's cool. I'm interviewing some people. They're talking some shit, you know. Stuff great. like that. 
Are we done? We can take one more after that. Henry's got to get going pretty I, soon. Yeah. I got, a, I got a babysit soon. Okay, final but, question right yeah, in the front so, row. So. It, it's not a question. I'd like to thank you. You, you helped me understand. When I was writing graffiti, you helped me understand the, the graffiti led to the four elements of hip-hop. I be, I'm a DJ now. I'm a DJ now. And Style Wars, thank you. You featured me in it. And, uh, uh, and that's basically it, Henry. I, would just, I just want to thank you. Well, I got to tell you, I got to return the thanks to you and everyone here because, you know, what I did was standing on what you were doing. And so you gave me a large portion of my life as well. So thank you. Thank you, Henry. And this is why people love Henry Chalfon, everybody. This is a, he's a modest guy and a generous guy. And, you know, too many artists, in my experience, are just, you know, devoted to their own work. And you know what? I can't blame them. You know, to get the work done uh, can consume an individual life. And people, you know, tend to be devoted to their own work to the exclusion of everything else, not to mention everybody else. And Henry is an exception to that rule, and that's why we love him. <laughs>